queers we're talking calling the corners we're talking invoking the spirit and we're talking we are the losers mister and i'm joe you already fucked up this line god damn it <laughs> it's the weirdos want to try that again damn it. no i will not <laughs> <laughs> you don't okay okay and i'm trace and we're talking lots of snakes and bugs really this is the best you could pull out i you know i was looking <laughs> wait, wait 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 let me try it again <laughs> and we're talking the racist Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side crying, what did I do to deserve this? She knows. She knows Jan. I've seen this movie like a couple times before, and when she said that, I was just like, what? <laughs> Are you fucking serious? <laughs> yeah. What a deludenoid. Uh, I mean, it's relevant to our current political times where oh, sure the dumb privileged white girl doesn't know what she did. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there, there's some, um, real extreme racism in this movie, uh, yeah. and I, I must admit that watching it today was real mm-hmm. extreme. <laughs> yep. And what movie are we talking about, Trace? Oh, right. Everyone, we are talking The Craft. Yes, we are. Seminal, lesbian, Wicca, pagan film, closing out Pride Month. Super 90s, uh, very important to a lot of people, um, especially some of our listeners in the queer community. Uh, Yeah, we're talking witches, y'all. And of course, we decided that we were not suited to handle this one alone. No, oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all, full disclosure, I'm not going to come down on this movie hard, but I'm not like a crazy fan of it. And so I knew, we both knew, that with that being said, we definitely needed a female perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, this is designated female territory for a lot of women of a certain age. This is like their film. So we wanted to bring on a perspective that reflected that. So, ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, she is the founder and co-editor of Anatomy of a Scream, the female-founded and queer-inclusive horror website. She is also the executive editor of Grimm Magazine, a twice-annual print publication. She's a co-editor at House of Leaves Publishing, and a co-host of the Riverdale podcast Milkshakes and Mimosas. And most importantly, she's my horror bestie here in Toronto. So please welcome Valeska Griffiths. Yay! Hey guys. Hi. It's so nice to finally meet you. Joe won't shut up about you ever. <laughs> For good reason. I also just want to point out it's a Riverdale comedy podcast. We are not pro the show. <laughs> This is true. If you listen to the podcast, you're like, they almost never seem to cover Riverdale, and they seem to hate it. Well, we love to hate it. You know what? As someone who has not watched Riverdale since the middle of season three, are they in season four right now? They are. Okay, yeah. I I stopped watching halfway through season three. Um, So you were there for the cult season, I think? Well, half of it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it was the the, the game, the board game that was like, oh god. Griffins and Gargoyles. Yes. Oh, god. (laughs) I feel like I'm getting stupider just listening to the two of you describe this. That is a tagline for our podcast, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not since Heroes have I seen a show that was such a great first season drop so badly in, like, subsequent seasons. 
Yeah. It makes it more fun to talk about, though. Oh, I believe it. I mean, For riffing sure. is always more better. Is always better than like you know treating it seriously. <laughs> Which you yeah. really can't. You can't do it. No, they don't. Well, actually, no, they do. <laughs> I think the show just begs to be made fun of. Like, it, in the first season, it seemed to know it was in on the joke. And then in subsequent seasons, it's just been like, I think the writers are just throwing things at a wall and being like, cult, gay, serial killer. The cult leader built his own rocket to shoot himself into space. What? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> I'm sorry, was that a spoiler? <laughs> no, I don't give a shit. <laughs> But that's probably going to be vital information because what we have in front of us is a movie that I might say is like what on the surface is a typical like a WB at the time, like teeny bopper horror film, horror-ish film. Right. I feel like one of the things I struggle with with The Craft is that I didn't see this when it first came out, which is hilarious because after Scream, which came out in December of this year, this film came out in May. May? Yeah. I saw every horror movie that came out after that, and yet I didn't see The Craft for years afterwards. So my big thing was I feel like I've missed the moment and I don't fully understand the power that the film has over people. So when I go back and look at it, I'm like, yeah, it really does feel like almost like an extended pilot for a WB show. Well, that's going to be important because uh, the writers of this film claim that, so they were going to make this show like into a TV show kind of like how Clueless did with their TV show. Right. And the WB rejected the pitch. And then what comes out in 1998, but the pilot for Charmed. Mm -hmm. Oh, this would have been so much better. Oh, yeah. But this movie even has a sound cue that Charmed would go on to use as their opening fucking credits. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, huh, this is just like Charmed. Because I, I actually did. I, I grew up watching Charmed instead of Buffy because I wasn't allowed to watch Buffy. <laughs> I love your mom so much. <laughs> My mom. Uh, so I actually do love Charmed. I'm sure watching it today, I probably wouldn't quite find it as compelling, even though now, of course, I find Buffy very compelling. Mm. But yeah, I mean, Charm flat out just like stole that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I'm curious to hear what the two of you think, whether the audience for this movie then transitioned over to something like Charmed or Buffy. Because a lot of people have said that this film is like a gateway to horror film for them. Or, you know, it got them cued to look for strong female representation. And then they saw that in subsequent horror-ish entries. I mean, I feel like my interest in like witchcraft and magic and stuff predated the craft. So I may not be the best person to answer that question. But is that what drew you to the film in the first place? I mean, it's definitely what drew me to the film. But I didn't go on to watch Charmed. And I... I watched Buffy on and off a little bit, but I never really got super into it the way that you did. Hmm. Well, and they did have a real life Wiccan um, on the set, like as an Two advisor them, for this film to make sure they treated everything like properly. Because Fruza Balk also was uh, practicing Wiccan at the time. Did not know that. Oh yeah, she. She bought an occult shop as like part of yeah. her um, study <laughs> for the film. Oh. Yeah, apparently it was like the oldest occult shop in North America, and it was about to go under and be turned into some kind of pizza place. And she said, oh, how about I just buy this shop and run it instead? Yeah, she sold it in 2001, I think, but it's still running. Like, it's still open. Oh, good for yeah. her. Yeah. I mean, because I, I, honestly, I, I try to look up what she's been doing lately. I did see her in a movie last year called Trespassers, which she's really good in for, like, the two scenes she's in. But she just hasn't really done much. She no. was on, like, celebrity ghost sightings or something. <laughs> okay. 
She's very diverse. I've seen that she released a song in 2010. Apparently she has talked about being a writer. Yeah, she still acts occasionally, but she seems to have no love lost for Hollywood. She feels like people are generally sellouts and she doesn't want to be a part of it. I want her to be in a coven with Lana Del Rey. (laughs) God. (laughs) I'm sorry. In this political moment, I don't think anyone should be friends with Lana Del Rey. Oh God, what has she done? No, don't tell me. Let's just say she is no longer welcome at the table. Oh no! no. I've seen people trashing her on Twitter, but I haven't like because I don't really listen to her that much. But I haven't like gone into like what she's done. But you know what? I've been like off Twitter for a while. Yeah, (laughs) Twitter's a hard place to be right now. (laughs) So many problematic faves. Yeah, I'm kind of in your boat, Joe. Um, so again, I was seven when this came out, and. I missed the boat. I don't remember if I saw it for the first... I think I probably saw, like, parts of it on TV when I was in high school, but I didn't really see it in full until I was in my early 20s when I was in college. And I liked it fine. It was... I think it's one of those where it was not only built up so much for me, but because I wasn't really, A, in the target demographic for the film, and I wasn't a teenager in the 90s when this was coming out, so I very much missed the boat, and... It doesn't connect with me like it does so many others, but I say that fully understanding that it may not really be meant for me. Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating piece of pop culture. Like, this is right on the cusp of the change in horror in terms of the direction it would go in the back half of the 90s and into the early 2000s. But it's so startlingly feminist in the mid 90s like to see Uh, a movie that has four (laughs) female leads (laughs) i i I hear that hesitation valeska and i'm kind of in the same boat i mean the first half of the film yes i would agree yes it's once they summon manon right like once that happens and i i get that there is a power corrupts message here but Mm. i i don't i think it's interesting that they call on like a male deity that was actually made up for the film Mm -hmm. I I made that note too I was like oh interesting that it's a man Mm -hmm. which is so odd like you've got two practicing Wiccas working on this movie and then actually it was um, the Wiccan consultant didn't want people to be actually summoning I guess quote unquote real deities or spirits so they made something up to protect people I guess and I know it's a one off line about the gender of the deity but I will tell you that what that does to my reading of the film is not only is it power corrupting but it's also a bunch of girls fighting over a man yeah which I mean spoiler alert in the end turns one of them insane two of them become just like super bitches bitches. and then Robin Tunney is kind of like I guess she's I mean she's there (laughs) like she she wins in the end (laughs) Fruza Balk actually has like a really interesting read of the film as like the individual triumphing over the collective, which is kind of interesting, the way that uh, Sarah breaks away. Right. And the movie hints at this, but they don't make it explicit. But like in early drafts of the screenplay, it was like the other girls never had powers. It was always Sarah. And so basically it was they were leeching off of Sarah's power the entire mm-hmm. time. Yeah, there's a deleted scene actually where you see Sarah treating Bonnie's back right before that major surgery that she goes well not surgery but like the needle tattoo thingy whatever you would call that (laughs) but that was taken out but that actually shows that it was Sarah actually curing her right whereas in the film you see Nancy kind of uh, doing it during that one scene before the fireplace I definitely have questions because I've not seen the deleted scenes Uh, you know what I'll wait until we get into the discussion of the girls because I have thoughts (laughs) Um, (laughs) I feel like we all have a lot of thoughts 
This movie is somehow very straightforward, and yet it's very complicated in a number of different ways. It is, and I think that's maybe, I mean, this movie has always left me cold, and I feel like that's the intent behind it. I agree with both of you. I think the first half is actually pretty great. It is standard, like, 90s teen movie, but, like, plus witches. Yeah. And then I appreciate the darkness, because it does go to some places in the in the second mm-hmm. half that I was like, oh, like, I wouldn't have expected to see this in what's essentially a 90s teen movie, because, again, they were trying to actually go for PG-13. Apparently, the only reason it got an R rating is because of the, the subject matter of Wicca. Yeah, that's just a morality thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then apparently as soon as the director, Andrew Fleming, found out that they were just going to be handed that R rating, he was like, well, if I hadn't known that, I would have like, pushed further. <laughs> yeah. I wish he had. Yeah. <laughs> At least in Pharaoh's a balk, right? Oh. I mean, this movie begs for an R rating so that these girls can actually be authentic teenage girls. Like, not to suggest they're not, but with stronger language, I think this film would actually be a lot more reflective of a lived experience. Yes, I agree. I mean, granted, I do think this this movie and the characters become very mean. And I'm going to use a lot in this episode mean as a distinction from bitchy. Okay. But like, I feel like some of the punishments would have gone a little bit more harsh or dare I say even gorier had they gone for an R rating. Hmm. Okay. So can you distinguish between bitches and mean for people just to make sure that they understand? So me personally, this is how I view this. Bitchy is more like your sorority row type where it's like, oh, it's like fun, like drag queen reading, like just fun, like jabs, whatever. Mean has like an air of cruelty, cruelty to it. And, okay. you know, I, I've seen people say, oh, Sorority Row, like, they're very unlikable because they're so mean. And I'm like, nah, I kind of see them as bitchy. Whereas this movie, it's very cruel. And I I find myself really not liking any of these girls. Maybe Robin Tunney is an exception, but honestly, even, like, even by the final frame of the film, I'm kind of like, ugh, I, I can't get on board with it. Right. Well, it is complicated because there's a lot of stuff that's happening just beneath the surface, like, if you don't look for it, you might miss all of the microaggressions and the bullying and the harassment. Like, I think it's very obvious in the Rachel True Rochelle storyline because okay. that's her big issue. But the way that the girls treat each other and the way that the other students treat Sarah around like the slut shaming and that kind of stuff, like, it's very prescient and very astute in terms of the ways that girls are mean to other girls and in some ways i think oh okay so what happens in the back half of the film is a natural extension of that right like sarah was never actually friends with any of these girls they were either leeching powers off of her or they were using her to bolster their own ambition and it makes sense that they would turn on each other but there's another deleted scene that actually kind of goes into this a bit more where sarah approaches the other two girls to ask about binding nancy nancy arrives she kind of like rips the two of them to shreds, going on about how they were nothing before she met them. She was their only friend. They mm. were dealing with all these social issues, and she was the one who, like, reached out to them. Sarah's just, like, this interloper who's come in and started, like, trying to tear their group apart, and it kind of demonstrates a little bit more why they would turn on her later on. Otherwise, it just seems kind of random and arbitrary. Well, now that you say that, that makes me kind of upset, because, I mean, I don't think it would have necessarily fixed the film for me, but it definitely would have made the transition to yeah. their turning a lot more palatable. Yeah. Agreed. 
Yeah, I think also just the fact that they are misfits, they are the weirdos, and I think the reason a lot of people gravitate towards this film is because they were also the weirdos when they were growing up, and so oh yeah, this film was kind of a safe haven of like, look, there are people like me, which I get, I mean, as a queer person, like, I understand that, but then that they also kind of, I mean, kind of, they do become the villains, it just rubs me the wrong way, and again, I get that's the point, but I really don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it either. I do want to save some time at the end for a discussion about the remake, which of course is already in post-production at this point. But I'm very curious to know what your thoughts are about whether or not the remake will continue this same idea of like the girls turning against each other, or if you think that they'll have an antagonist from outside of the group and the girls will bond to fight. Because in a way, that's a more traditional story, but I feel like that's a much more attractive narrative to put forward about teen girls in 2020. Yeah. Like maybe if they just turned on Chris together instead of yeah, turning like on Chris each other. Yeah, like Chris should be the big bad, right? Yeah. But yes. instead she like ends up forgiving him posthumously, telling the other girls that he was like deep down a really great guy, even though yeah. he did nothing but sexually harass her and then try to assault her. Mm-hmm. The 90s and the track record for sexual assault. And... God damn it, Skeet. So this is the first time ever in this podcast that I've like, divided my notes up. So I have like the first half and like up to when they said Manon in my regular bulleted notes. And then I just divided it up into good things happen, notes, mm-hmm. bad things happen, notes, break up and fight. Like, I was like, oh, that's yeah. pretty much like the way this movie goes. Yeah. Not wrong. (laughs) Well, okay, so before we go into, like, your plot, let's just... uh, So, basically, the concept for this film came from a collaboration between the producer, Douglas Wick, who wanted to create a film about high school mixed with witchcraft, and screenwriter Peter Filardi uh, extensively researched the topic and wrote the initial draft, but then the director, Andrew Fleming, was hired to direct and produce the final version. This is Fleming's first big film. He had done a film in the late 80s called Bad Dreams, and another film right before this called Threesome. Listeners, you may not know those two films, but he has gone on to direct films like Dick, which is fantastic. Nancy Drew. The <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, we held off as long as we could before we laughed at it. You gotta clip that. I remember seeing the poster for Dick in the movie theater when I was, I mean, I would have been 10 when Dick came out because it was 99. And I just remember thinking it was like a porno. Mm-hmm. Even though you ha- you have Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams like on there with Richard Nixon doing his like you know peace sign pose in front of the mm-hmm. White House, but I didn't know what that was at the time, so I just thought it was oh, about no. dicks. Well, and the problem <laughs> is is that if you're a teenager who is the target audience for this teen film, you don't know fuck all about Tricky Dicky, so the marketing totally failed them. Well, if American history is teaching you properly, you do, but. <laughs> Uh, you know what? Valeska and I are just going to sit up here in our high. That's what I was going to say. Can you imagine, like, asking your mom for money to go see that film? (laughs) Hey, mom, can I have 10 bucks? I want to go see some dick. To go see dick? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, he he went on to also direct the 2007 Emma Roberts movie Nancy Drew, 2008's Hamlet 2, and then... Uh, really, his only notable film in the last 10 years is Ideal Home, the gay movie star... I mean, gay movie. A movie in which Paul Rudd and Steve Coogan <laughs> star as a gay couple who adopt or come into possession of a child. <laughs> come like in a cardboard box on the side. <laughs> I haven't seen it. But also important to note is that he's also an out and proud queer man. Mm-hmm. Yes, I had to dig deep into the annals of the internet to discover that little tidbit. And that's why I'm going to pull in Sorority Row for this, too, because it's also a movie with bitchy females that, granted, he didn't co-write it, but um, the director of that one is also a gay man. Right. Okay. 
Um, not much in the way of casting. They had tested like 85 actresses, apparently screen tested for these four roles. Angelina Jolie was brought in, Alicia Silverstone, which I would have kind of loved mm. Alicia Silverstone in this movie, um, especially post-Clueless. Well, and especially in, there's one scene where Nancy is showing off her new house, and for some reason, Sarah is just wearing a beret. And on the audio commentary, Andrew Fleming is like, oh, that beret, that beret haunts my dreams, which should have been the clue right there that he was a big old mo. But um, (laughs) I was just like, he was like, I don't know why we made her wear this beret. And all I could think of was because Clueless came out like a year before this and Cher wears berets through the whole movie. And Clueless, I think, was a summer of 95 movie. Sleeper hit, did really well. And this was kind of the same thing. Like this movie only made about $25 million domestically, but it stuck around and resonated. I'm sure the home video sales were through the roof. Right. I'm shocked by that gross. I thought that this movie was like 60 million, 70 million gross. Nope, 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 nope. It's crazy to me. Well, I mean, they cost a lot less to like buy a ticket back then as well. This is true. Yes, <laughs> that is correct. But then you have a movie like Anaconda that makes like, you know, 60 million domestically. Ugh. <laughs> or Scream later the year, which makes over 100 million. Yeah, exactly, right? But you know what? Maybe it's because it's female-centric. Maybe that had something to do with it. Because a bunch of boys didn't want to go see a bunch of women be tough. Yeah, it it would be curious. I didn't have the chance to go back and revisit the trailer to see whether or not they tried to emphasize the weirdo outcast angle or the witchcraft or the female angle. I'm wondering if the combination of all three was a little bit like, boys, stay away. And now that you mention it, I think think they use that charm theme song uh it's i think it's how soon is now in the trailer mm-hmm. for this movie they did it's I a cover you call it the bah. charmed song <laughs> i i do call it the charm song i grew up watching it was eight years of my life i did go back and watch the trailer and they were heavy on the uh special effects and the witchy angle so a lot of the climax then mm-hmm. mm. and probably like the glamour and that shit yeah. Uh, interesting note, too, though, Rochelle was actually not black in the script. She was rewritten to be black um, when Rachel True was cast, and then they incorporated the racism subplot into the script. So I'm assuming she probably had some other issue, because like, it's kind of episodic, right? Like, all the girls each have their own thing, their one-dimensional fact about themselves. Yep. And True's is that, oh, she's black. If folks have watched the Horror Noir documentary, she gets, like, a couple of good zingers in there about, like, some of the things that you know, they hit the cutting room floor and never made it onto the screen, but... Like, never seeing her parents? <laughs> yeah. Family Is that a deleted scene, though? Because I had read that they filmed it, but they cut it out. Uh, I think it was scripted, but I don't know if they filmed it. Uh, I also had read a rumor that she was left out of a lot of publicity for the film. Yes. Ooh. Yeah, because they were afraid that having a black girl with the three white girls was going to turn people off or some bullshit like that. I mean, it also explains why she's the least developed character in the film and has the least to do. Yeah. I would say she and, to a certain extent, Bonnie are fairly undeveloped, but yeah. it's hard to overlook the fact that they cast a black actress in this teen film, which is like pretty avant-garde like i'm thinking in a couple of years we get the faculty where they splash usher all over everything and he's maybe in a scene in the entire movie so like it's pretty significant that they cast rachel true and then they give her fuck all to do and yeah. it's really annoying <laughs> well because again in the beginning i like these characters and i want to know more about them but yeah like i understand the importance of having the racist white girl subplot but the fact is that it's the only thing that defines this character and for me that's a problem yeah, racism is not a character trait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's actually brought up during that one deleted scene where Nancy is yelling at them for trying to turn on her. 
that's basically the uh, thing that she points out about Rochelle. She's like, you were the only black girl in like this entire school and nobody would talk to you until I talked to you. So once again, just mm. like that one note. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, I mean, you're right though, Joe. It's the same thing with Bonnie. Bonnie's is, oh, she has scars. On her back, by the way, not on her face, which, I mean, okay, I'm sorry. I'm not going to like say, oh, she shouldn't feel bad because it's just on her back. But, it, <laughs> but like that, that's all she has, right? Like she's just, she's shy and meek about her scars. And then boom, the second she loses them, oh, she's a huge fucking cunt. <laughs> Actually, she's sexy, and then she's a huge fucking cunt. Yes, that's true. I forgot. I didn't write down her exact line in the back of the car when she defends her bitchiness, but, um, I'm sorry, her meanness, but, yeah, it's not pleasant. She says something about, like, sorry if I spent half of my life being a monster, and now I want to have some fun. Ugh. What a message to tell people who don't look like Nev Campbell, too. <laughs> I can see how you could argue, though, like, oh, like that that would totally happen. And I actually did want to point out, too. I don't think it would happen, though. Like, I don't think that the psychological burdens would be just lifted after the scars were magically taken away. What I think is interesting is that the director of this film has actually directed a lot of TV, Andrew Fleming, um, and he's done quite a few episodes of Younger, but he also, he's executive producer and directed almost a third of the episodes of Netflix's Insatiable, which is about a formerly fat girl played by Disney's Debbie Ryan, who loses a bunch of weight and becomes confident and popular and enters beauty pageants, but then she also becomes like a murderer. Yeah. Huh. She's the quintessential not good girl anymore. Yep. Because she's skinny. Maybe Andrew Fleming has a certain idea of what teenage girls are like. Maybe, but what's interesting, though, is that Dick actually is a pretty good portrayal of female friendship. Mm-hmm. But I digress, you know. We're looking at the beginning of his career with the craft to the very, like, well, the latest of his career with Insatiable. Right. So, okay, this film comes out May 3rd, 1996, released by Sony Pictures, a.k.a. Columbia, a logo I am all too familiar with in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. A runtime of 101 minutes and a budget of $15 million. Cheap. <laughs> it opens at number one, but <laughs> it opens with $6.7 million. Like, May, a summer movie, number one at the box office with $6.7 million. Ah, I bet you gotta remember this is before May was defined as part of the summer box office. Oh, right, it was still school season. Yeah, but I mean, it it is genuinely shocking. Like, I love going back to these 90s films and seeing, like, it topped the box office with $6 million. You're like, oh, <laughs> in current times, that would be massive flop. It ends its domestic realm with $24.8 Box office mojo did not have international numbers listed, so I'm going off the Wikipedia for international, but it does say it grossed $30.8 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $55.6 enough to be considered a sleeper hit that year. Hmm. And okay. Rotten Tomatoes scores with critics, it gets middling reviews for the most part. Um, we're looking at a 55% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.48 out of 10. That's crazy to me. That, that it's at high or that it's at low? That it's that low, but I guess, I mean, if it's at a 10 for the first half and like a 0 for the second half, maybe it averages out at 5. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you Let's that. Let's go with that. I will totally give you that. But... Letterbox. I mean, obviously, your average moviegoer loves this movie, so it does have an average score of 6.8 out of 10 on Letterbox. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that this is one of those films where whenever you run down lists of classic cult films, particularly for female horror fans, this film is always on. Well, it's a sleepover film. It is a sleepover film, both within the context of the film and outside. What I'm interested to know, and especially from our listeners, so again, this is a movie for a certain generation of people, but is it also a modern sleepover film? Like, Are, are there teenage girls now that are seeking out this movie and watching it at sleepovers? 
I don't so know. what Trace is saying is teenage girls slide into his DMs. <laughs> no, oh my god. Um, the thing with cult movies is, you know, it's like, oh, are they a time capsule where it's like, oh, like, it's really just for those people that saw it and enjoyed it, or like, has it amassed more people over the years? I do think it's the latter in the case of the crap, but I'm just curious. It's a good question. Personally, I don't think it's aged very well in its representation, and I, I know that we'll talk about it, but... I'm interested to see, like, if, if you've never seen this film before, if you watched it for the first time in preparation for this, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have encountered quite a few films in the run of the podcast that have a certain foundational component for people. And then there's a bunch of other people who look at it and say, I didn't see this at the time. I don't really understand mm-hmm. the full extent of the appeal. So it does happen. But I mean, I've heard from so many people where it's like every Halloween they watch this movie. Oh, 100%. I mean, again, this movie has a following. <laughs> yes, <laughs> undoubtedly. As you uh, noticed when you said that you were watching it. And once again, you <laughs> were deluged by responses from people. Yeah, it was it was a lot. <laughs> but good for y'all. I'm happy for you. <laughs> All right. Shall we dig into this? Let's go. Okay, so Sarah Bailey, Robin Tunney, arrives in Los Angeles with her father and stepmother, Jenny. Jenny is a (laughs) non-character. And her her... wig, yeah. Shall we just talk about the wig off the top? We have to. It's so bad. So Robin Tunney is obviously coming off of a big breakout role in Empire Records, during the production of which she shaved her head on camera. So she got this role when she had about an inch of hair and had to do the entire production. She had to come in an hour early and stay an hour late every day of shooting so that she could get this atrocious looking wig on. I wish she'd just done it with the short hair. She looked hot. Yeah. But you know what? I bet not LA hot. I think it would have coded her as too out of the norm. Well, that could have been her one note then. She could have been right. For being she's bald. <laughs> Ew, she's so hideous. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, d- I don't want to talk too much about the remake just yet, but the girl that they have cast to play the Sarah equivalent, like the lead role, also has sort of short pixie cutish hair. And I'm interested to see if they give her a wig or if they play her that way. I'm also interested, like, like, I'm thinking of, like, other movies where actresses, like, had short hair and had to wear wigs. I'm like, okay, we can double feature this and Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. and i'm terrible with wigs like i swear i didn't even <laughs> notice the wig until this rewatch well I-, I think it looks the worst in the blonde hair scene but yes yeah it's the not glamour a great scene wig. yeah it's a different wig then they used a green one and then they just keyed in the um two color changes oh that's why it looks like shit but yeah. apparently robin tiny looked really good with green hair i can imagine that that would be I true i believe it if she <laughs> yeah. can pull off bald she can pull off green hair she really pulls off bald. I love her in Empire Records. Like, not just the character, but she looks great bald. Actually, in Vertical Limit, um, plug, amazing movie, she has, like, a pixie cut in that, too. She does, yeah. Adding I mean, she just list. looks good with shorter hair. And Supernova, she has pixie cut in that, too. <laughs> My God. Huh. She has a type. Apparently so, yeah. So, she starts off this wig. <laughs> she starts off this movie <laughs> with a somewhat unfortunate wig. I think it gets a little bit better because, of course, she also starts to style her hair better as she becomes more popular and a little mm-hmm. bit more sexy like the other girls. So it looks pretty rough here at the beginning. Yeah. All this to say, they are in Los Angeles to arrive at their palatial, slightly rundown new home. This is a set, so this is not legitimate house porn, but this house is pretty impressive. 
it's like Spanish architecture or something, but it is gorgeous. Very mm-hmm. large. Very large. Mm-hmm. I was like, are there secretly other family members coming to live here with them? Because three people do not need a house this big. Um, it's California. What that is fair. Yes. They need room for all the snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Scream. Like it's fucking Nev Campbell and her dad in that giant like wood mansion. Oh my god. Ugh, to live in the movies. You'd have so much space. Mm-hmm. So, after looking around, Sarah encounters a homeless man with a snake in the front door, and he seems to be trying to warn her, but of course, it's a strange man with a snake in your front door, so she freaks out and he runs away. (laughs) Symbolism! As you would. I mean, the snake is, like, corresponding to Nancy, so it is a pretty good warning she could have listened to, but... Mm -hmm. A little bit ominous. But even by that, then, that, that would insinuate that Nancy possibly has powers. Like, she subconsciously, like, sent a warning there. Or maybe Sarah subconsciously is warning herself by bringing the homeless man to her home. Later on in the film, she talks about how she would try to do things and it would never have the intended outcome. So in this case, she'd be like, am I going to make friends at this new school? Oh, shit, there's a man with a snake at my front door. Uh, Well, it also could be Manon, like, keying into her, too. True. Fair enough. Yeah. Speculation. We've already put, like, too much thought into this. Mostly, <laughs> More so than the yes. film has, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> We're also two sentences into this two I apologize. Continue your plot summary. <laughs> yes, please proceed. At Catholic school the next day, Sarah is very clearly the new girl because she's not in uniform. And in the hallway, we meet our other trio of... Not our other trio. We meet a trio of girls that we saw over the opening credits. So we have Preppy Rochelle, played by Rachel True. Consistently wet-looking introvert Bonnie, played by <laughs> Nev Campbell, the hair. No, I. you're right. Until she gets sexy. Once she gets those scars removed, man, her hair is doing things. She discovers shampoo. Apparently so. <laughs> I'm so distraught about my scars, I can't shampoo my hair. Hey, that's a sign of depression. <laughs> I was actually also, for some reason, thinking of, like, the house bunny when I saw this, and she reminds me of the girl who, like, doesn't speak in that movie. Oh, okay. Like, she's so shy. Lily, she's just so shy. She's just like, Ooh. Oh my god, Lily, you're British? <laughs> yes, that. <laughs> Except it's Nev Campbell. Right. <laughs> oh my god, Nev Campbell's British? <laughs> <laughs> no, I joke. She's Canadian. Yay, CanCon. Yay. Is she really? She yes. is. Oh god, okay. <laughs> and of course, our final member of the trio is Intense Nancy, played by Feruza Bulk, and they are looking for a fourth member to join their coven, but it will not be the woman in a uniform, which I was like, is that a lesbian subtext right there? Well, the line is, I love a woman in uniform, and my only note for that is, same girl, same. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't any explicit queerness in this film, but I would still argue that, like, there's a lot of, like, little sly references throughout. Yeah, I mean, it's also like they are other in this film. Like, that, yes. that's what they are. So whether or not they're explicitly queer or not, like, the implication is there. Yeah. Yeah, you can definitely read that. Yeah, the practice of witchcraft is often associated with a certain kind of sapphic lesbianism at the best of times, so... Well, unless you're Buffy and it's that and drug addiction. Oh my god, I hate that they do that in Buffy. It drives me insane. But it kind of does that in this too with Nancy. Yeah, you know what? That is fair. <laughs> maybe that's why we don't like the second half maybe (laughs) all right later in french class bonnie sees sarah works on minor magic with a pencil and which has teeth marks all over it gross you're you're not a fan of the biting i'm just imagining robin tunney chewing this pencil (laughs) i mean they probably got a prop person to do it for her (laughs) 
Imagine having that job. <laughs> Can you bite this pencil and make it look real, please? And then also fetch coffee. <laughs> the PA, that poor yeah. guy. Poor girl. Oh, God. To be a PA on a Hollywood set. No, thank you. <laughs> so when Sarah approaches the trio to be lab partners, they rebuff her. So they're interested in her, but they're not quite willing to take that chance yet. So what changes that is that at lunch, Sarah is befriended by football hottie Chris Hooker, played by Skeet Ulrich, who I've called Skeet Ulrich nearly my entire life. Uh, I have two, but it's Ulrich. It's Ulrich. All right. You would know that if you listen to the Milkshakes and Mimosas podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please. Like you ever talk about him either. Wait, Valeska, would you say that even if you, let's say you've seen one episode of Riverdale, could you listen to your podcast and still like enjoy it? Uh, I think so. I think we have some pretty good banter. They also frequently don't talk about the show. Like, they look for any project that a Riverdale cast member has done, and then they do an episode on that. So we've actually had a ranking of the Scream franchise because Skeet Ulrich is in the first film. Oh my god. (laughs) It was a fun episode. It was a fun episode. Um, Controversial opinion here. I think that Ulrich is more attractive in this movie than he is in Scream. Really? Because I was going to say I don't find him hot at all in this movie. See, I, probably because he's a rapist. But yeah. <laughs> there is that. No, I don't like the long hair. The, the long hair and screen. I don't like men with long hair. It just It's not for me. I just like people that I feel like I can fix, I guess. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Wait, so you can't fix a rapist, but you can fix a serial killer? I can at least get him some dry shampoo. Fair. His That's hair true. is legitimately awful in Scream. He's basically got Bonnie's hair in Scream. That's true, he does. Yes, he does. Oh my god. No, because Nev Campbell was like, hey, Wes, look, I just did this movie called The Craft. Um, (laughs) Wouldn't this hair look so good on Skeet? Can you go tell him? Awesome, thanks. (laughs) Here, you can just take my extensions. Literally, I took them from set. (laughs) God. So Chris Hooker calls the trio the Bitches of Eastwick, which I'm fairly certain that line has been said before, but it is mildly amusing. I also doubt that he's seen the Witches of Eastwick, but sure. Oh, a thousand percent, he is not. No. <laughs> if Wikipedia existed back in 1996, it would have been that he looked it up on the Wikipedia. But that does feel like a very Ke- uh, Kevin Williams-y, Williamson-y type line, doesn't it? It Very does. much, yes. So he invites uh, Sarah to come watch him play football because he's hitting on her, and for some reason she's attracted to all of this nonsense, so she does watch him, but from afar. At this point, the three girls approach and introduce themselves, and Nancy warns Sarah about Chris. I remember this scene playing differently. I remember that there was an inference that she had been the victim of Chris's rumors, but here she very clearly says that he gave her a disease. Well, they do the rumors later, but I actually, even the dynamic with the girls in this, because you notice Nancy doesn't apologize. Bonnie Mm -hmm. apologizes for her. And it felt very Heathersy, yes. but like not a black comedy. No, because she she goes, Nancy's sorry about what happened in biology, and Nancy's standing right there. <laughs> I mean, I think this scene is explicitly here to make sure that we understand the dynamic between the girls. Nancy is in charge. Bonnie and Rochelle are underlings or followers. I also like that Bonnie says Nancy is sorry, and then Sarah says, you're Nancy, to Bonnie, as if Bonnie was talking about Mm. herself in the third person. In the third person. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Sarah's a a sweet girl. She's she's pretty. Yeah, thank God she's She's on her own journey. (laughs) She's got a bad wig, and she's on a journey. Yeah. 
So they invite her to go shopping with them, even though, of course, Sarah has no money, but they head off, and en route, it is revealed that before the move, Sarah nearly died by suicide by slitting her wrists. And she cut herself the right way. Which I thought was a really interesting way of, like, showing that Bonnie has kind of struggled with mental health issues without Mm -hmm. actually explicitly saying it, so that was a nice little Mm -hmm. cue. I mean, I don't want to get too heavy on the subject of suicide here, but, you know, Rochelle has that part where she's like, how do you know? What does that mean? What do you mean? And I get it, but I'm also kind of like, I don't know, in a movie about teenagers, I mean, because when I was in middle school, I remember, like, a bunch of girls, actually, like, were taken away from school because they were cut, they had cut themselves in, like, the bathroom at school. Oh, wow. It was a bunch of girls in the same group. Yes. And so I watched this, and I just think about that, because, like, I mean, you know, I was, like, you know, 13 or 14, and just kind of like, oh, so we're just teaching people how to cut themselves the right way now. <laughs> oh, I, hmm. Well, at least it was rated R. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> Except for those sleepovers. <laughs> I mean, I think I, it makes her a more empathetic character, but then it also... We're never exactly told why she has only recently moved to L.A., but then we get the stuff about her mom. We get the mm-hmm. stuff about the fact that her powers have gone awry a bunch of different times, and then we also get this, which suggests that she has been fleeing from a certain amount of darkness. And I know that they're older than this, but it could also be, like, a puberty thing. Explain? I mean, it's like, like she's becoming a woman, she's growing into her powers. Oh, okay. The Makes appearance sense. of her witch powers coincide, coincide with, like, sexual with her... blossoming. Yeah. Also, I can't believe I just said sexual blossoming. That's, Shoot yeah. me in the face. Gross. Gross. I'm logging off now. Bye. Okay, <laughs> thanks for coming. It was great chatting with you. <laughs> So they visit a shop run by Lirio, played by Assumpta Serna, and this shop looks like the magic box from Buffy. Just saying. Mm -hmm. It's apparently some guy's apartment that they just set dressed, but yeah, I was like, oh wow, Buffy just lifted the appearance of this shop wholesale. Well, I mean, let's not deny this film was influential, clearly, for a lot of WB shows. (laughs) Right, (laughs) yes. Taking sound cues, taking magic box shops. Taking plots. (laughs) Yep. So Lirio treats Sarah with a certain amount of kindness, which is curious because the other girls are clearly shoplifting from her, but (laughs) she's a gentle soul. That's the other thing, too. Like, I mean, we've discussed I'm a rule follower. Like, I don't like to break the rules. And immediately I'm just kind of like, oh, I already don't like them because they're shoplifting from this nice lady. I've wondered if it's an attempt to situate them as they're not just outsiders, but they're also slightly deviant, like they're not afraid to break rules and be a little bit bad. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't excuse it, but... No, no, again, I'm going to say this a lot, I get that's the point. Right. It just doesn't always sit well with you. (laughs) No. Right. After leaving the store, Sarah is again accosted by the snake man, and in panic she casts a spell on him, so he is run over by a car. Yeah, and the shot when the guy gets run over by the car is fucking awesome. Like, it is full on like you see him get run over by these wheels. It's super good. Yeah, the surprising thing was that in the audio commentary, Fleming is so nonchalant about it. He passes it off like, oh, this is how everybody films somebody getting hit and run over by a car. And you're just like, no, dude, this looks great. Mm -hmm. That is so boss of him to be nonchalant about it. (laughs) I know. Take the credit. (laughs) I mean, it's it's essentially a horror film. You gotta. I mean, this is really the the litmus test that throws these girls together. Like they have witnessed Sarah perform magic and more or less get a man killed, and in self defense. (laughs) Yeah, but this is the first time that Nancy is like, okay, it's fine. 
Uh, yeah, she, I mean, I think this is Nancy being like, shit, there's a new boss bitch in town. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the girls run into the woods where they determine that Sarah is a natural witch. And Nancy, of course, immediately introduces the concept of invoking the spirit, Menon. I don't really pay attention to filming locations much, but for some reason this wooded area looks exactly like the wooded area in Drowning Mona whenever Nev Campbell's character breaks down because she thinks Casey Affleck, her fiancé, might be a murderer. Not related, I just have to point that out. <laughs> okay, I mean, I'm sure there's that one person who's seen Drowning Mona out there. Wait, have is... you not seen Drowning Mona? No. Oh my god, it's so bizarre. It's a bizarre movie, but it is so funny. Okay, interesting. It's no, it's no Drop Dead Gorgeous, but it is worth a watch. Okay, good. Put that on the side for a future recommendation. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Continue. They're in the woods and threatening. Yeah, so Nancy's intensity rightfully freaks Sarah out a touch. Nancy has zero chill. Right. None. So she's like, you know what? I'm uh, going to go make out with that hot guy. And that works for a certain period of time and then... Chris is like, hey, how about we fuck? And Sarah's like, no, nah, I'm going to go home. Bye. Which I actually really respect that she's just like so forthright about it. Yeah. Is it not the first day? Like, she just met this dude. She does say fuck you. And I think this is the movie's only fuck. I think. I could be wrong. Um, maybe. No, she, she says fuck you after she finds out that he has lied to everyone and told everyone that they have slept together. And when he oh. and his friends leave in the school, then she says fuck you. Sorry, I thought that's where we were. I thought we, we skipped ahead past, like, making out to, bam, he, he lied about her. It's basically back to back, yes. You yeah. just, uh, you jumped like 10 seconds ahead of me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, she is now a kind of a laughingstock and a source of gossip, but the girls use this to their advantage. So this is where they say, okay, you should be with us because we would never laugh at you like that. Yeah. So this is where we find out that each girl has an individual hardship, as you tease, Trace. So Rochelle is being harassed by racist classmate Laura, Christine Taylor. I love Christine Taylor, and it's so sad to see her in a role like this, but she, she's good at playing a bitch. Uh, she actively sought this role out because she wanted to play the bitch. She's just Courtney Cox. That's great. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Bonnie is undergoing painful reconstruction surgery for her back scars by Dr. Wisteria Lane, Brenda Strong. Dude, I wrote, I wrote oh my god, it's Mary Alice. <laughs> I mean, we could have also said Everwood if we're thinking about a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Deep Rising and Treat Williams, because she's definitely his dead wife in that first season of Everwood. Uh, more current listeners will also recognize her maybe as Lex Luthor's mother in Supergirl. You keep trying to push that. I like the era of our shows, y'all. I'm sorry. I'm not going to I'm not going to apologize. You just, just apologized. <laughs> Your Canadianness is rubbing off on him. I know. Isn't it great? I'm sorry. Ugh. <laughs> is that is that joke old yet? Are you done with that? You know what? I'm a boot done with it. <laughs> we don't even say a boot. I know it's so I annoying. Hate it. No, y'all say it like it's it's like about about. It's like you, yeah, you the way like it's supposed syllable. to be said. I mean, either way, it's I mean, you might as well be a Kevin Smith like stereotype at this point. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, that. No, sir. Too we will far. not stand for that. <laughs> And of course, our final hardship is Nancy lives in a decrepit shack with her drunk mom and her near-do-well stepdad, Ray. And if we're talking about who's got the bad life, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Nancy. 
She has a really nice robe, though. I like that robe she wears. <laughs> it's not like a but silk yeah, kimono. terrible life. Uh, yeah, Nancy's life just it's like pre-Tiffany and Bride of Chucky. Mm-hmm. Except with a mom, too. <laughs> I mean, okay, I, I know that this is something that black people go through, but, like, Christine Taylor's line when she's like, because you, you get a moment when Rochelle's like, what, what, what did I do to you? What is wrong with me? Like, why do you treat me like this? Oh, she accuses the curly hair in her wig of being one of, quote-unquote, Rochelle's nappy hairs. Oh, wow. The racism? It's so ugly. It's It's real bad. Really hard. Like, super fucking hard to watch in this movie. Well, okay, should I not repeat the... Move your... ...line? I think you could say, like, a racial slur. You know that they only said that because they couldn't actually go all the way and say the actual N-word. Gotcha. I think we could just say racial slur, because... It's it's what it's supposed to be, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have that moment of empowerment where she asks her, what did I do? And then the response, which isn't even like a brush off, is because I don't like, insert racial slur. And her face after that is just... It's so, shocking. Yeah, it's brilliantly acted. Mm-hmm. It is. It, the look on Rachel True's face, honestly, because it probably comes from a place of very, like, a, of personal experience. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. And we joked earlier that being a member of a race is not a character trait. But to me, this is kind of the storyline that hits home the hardest of the three other girls. Yeah. Not just, I think, because you're right, Trace, it probably does come from a bit of an authentic, really unfortunate place. But there's something slightly shallow about the cosmeticness of Bonnie. And any sympathy that you might have for Nancy evaporates when you see how excited she gets that she accidentally kills her stepfather and then they just have a lot of money uh see that doesn't uh, really bother me about her character just the yeah, fact that either. she's i get that i mean it's he's wrong. obviously a piece of shit right but like don't get me wrong i think that feruza balk acts the fuck out of this role like she oh, is she's amazing fantastic in this and once once she starts like really losing it like it, it's it's a sight to behold it's wonderful mm-hmm. but yeah like nancy's always like, the whole movie is kind of not friendly or likable your mileage may vary i don't know if she needs to be likable to be sympathetic though you no, you, you're fair. correct she's a victim of circumstances and her circumstances are really shitty mm-hmm. yeah i'm assuming that we all gasped when laura says her racial slur but there's something really horrible about when rochelle says like when she calls nancy white trash as well right I don't Mm -hmm. think they're comparable, but I do think that that socioeconomic difference is really challenging. And it's it's something that I kind of applaud the craft for actually having the gumption to say, you know what, she doesn't come from a good background. And it's not just, oh, yeah, this is like a character thing. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Okay, we now have a better understanding of where each girl is coming from. So the girls decide to go on a road trip and Mm. synthesize their friendship. This is where Nancy delivers her iconic line that I fucked up off the top. So we are the weirdos, mister, to the bus driver. Also, we get some really great spaghetti strap dresses. (laughs) (laughs) This is why we have you on here, because Trace can't remember a costume to save his life. I can remember every single detail of spaghetti strap dress outfits. <laughs> I actually had a conversation with a friend recently because I, what I thought a spaghetti strap was is not what it actually is. What did you think it was? Yeah, now we need to know. My sister used to have this shirt where like the sleeves themselves, it was almost like fringe where it was like the sleeves were made of oh, fringe. Oh, yeah. Not where you like you have a sleeve and there's fringe hanging off of it, but like the entire- It's like sp- cut, like slice sort of. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought spaghetti strap was because it looked like spaghetti like hanging off your arms. But uh, no, 
makes sense. It's just the strap. It's literally just the strap. <laughs> it's like a single piece of spaghetti. Yes, exactly. I was very confused. Uh, and this is like a, no shit like a week ago that I had this revelation. Oh my god, your life well, is forever changed. plural, so I wonder what the singular of spaghetti would be. We should call that. <laughs> spaghetti. Just spaghetti straps. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I remember when I found out that those super tight dresses that were very popular in like the mid to late 2000s. The bandage dresses? The bandage dress. I was like, wait, what? Why are they, what? Oh, I feel like those were like the, the, the costume of every mean girl in every 90s teen movie. Correct. Yes. Hmm. You are not wrong, sir. But yeah, so we got, we are the, we are the weirdos, which is, of course, I'm sure a mantra. I, I bet people have this tattooed on their body somewhere. You can get that 100%. shirt at Hot Topic right now. <laughs> yes i know because i looked it up today <laughs> wait does hot topic exist because of this movie this and every scissor well and tim burton everything right i mean they also have a riverdale section oh my god Ugh, <laughs> so they go for a little hike and then they perform a ritual so that they are more or less beholden to each other they mix their blood and some wine and drink it and with that they each cast a spell for their most desired wish i love that rochelle calls out sarah for having the worst and most pathetic wish i mean sarah's wish sucks <laughs> you've got all of this power sarah and you just want to bone a dude i couldn't get over the time they were dude. drinking all the blood ew not into blood rituals i actually wrote ew in my notes <laughs> fair enough <laughs> Velasca's like, I've never performed a blood ritual. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nothing against. I mean, actually, no, I'm sorry. Yes, everything against it. Um, but. Just yeah. to clarify, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're protesting a little too much. Um, this is also once. some of your queerness, though, because they're all, they're all kissing each other. But, but. There but, is some full on the mouth kiss there. Well, Rochelle and Bonnie kiss on the lips, everyone else kisses on the cheeks. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's just because in real life, Rachel True and Nev Campbell were really good friends? Maybe. Apparently they hang out all the time. And both Feruza Bulk and Robin Tenney were like, yeah, they spent a lot of time together. And I was like, oh, they didn't invite the other two. Aww. <laughs> that makes me so happy. I love Rachel True. She's like the warmest, nicest person. She's exceedingly delightful. It does suck because she's she's unfortunately. I mean, well, her and Balk have kind of done the least since this movie, I think. Mm -hmm. But I do apply. I mean, ever since she came out about being left out of the craft reunion stuff, like she's been on it, and I, I applaud it. Mm -hmm. I love that she was like, you know what? I'm not sitting here and taking this shit anymore. And she just called it like she said. Because there's so many people who would say, oh, don't do that. You know, don't be seen as difficult. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. And she was mm -hmm. like, I'm not getting these invites, so I'm not... Yeah, the hand wasn't even feeding her. Yeah, there's no hand to be fed here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was in Sharknado too, so I think she was probably like, you know what? Fuck it. As we frequently talked about, there is bank to be made on the convention circuit. Mm-hmm. If this is your claim to fame, you're going to want to be invited to those money-making conventions. Right, and, and it's not beneath anyone. I, I, I met Yo. Nev Campbell at a convention. It's fucking great. When she was doing conventions, I was like, holy shit! Right? Yeah. Just want to point out that Rachel True has a tarot deck coming out if anyone wants to look up True Heart Tarot and maybe throw her some money. There we go. Yes, let's support our black creatives. I do have a tarot deck, and then I tried to learn it, and it was so complicated. I, I deal really with, like, black and white, like, no no interpretation, like, no gray areas, and mm -hmm. tarot is all interpretation. <laughs> yes. She did my tarot reading at Salem Horror Fest, and it was amazing. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Dead. 
<laughs> the question is, will we ever get to go to another convention or horror festival? One day. Hopefully. Dear Lord. I miss Salem so much. The next day at school, Chris apologizes to Sarah, seemingly under her command, so her wish is already paying off. Or sorry, her spell is already paying off, so clearly Sarah's the most powerful witch. Oh yeah. And at a sleepover, the girls perform the adolescent ritual light as a feather, stiff as a board, and they levitate Rochelle off the ground. How many girls do you think did this in their sleepovers? Every single one of them. (laughs) Iconic, for sure. And also a little, like, uh, lesbian sex joke thrown in that scene as well. What is it? I think I missed that. Sarah's explaining that you have to, like, put your fingers under the girl, and then Nancy's like, you uh, put your fingers where? And, like, makes a little gesture. Uh, Two in the pink, one in the stink. No, that that is a different kind of... (laughs) The shocker! That's Wes Craven's shocker. Boo! Get out of here. (laughs) Anyway, they make a wholesome lesbian sex joke. There we go. So together the girls are becoming increasingly confident and sexy. So naturally that means we get a slow motion walking montage. Call back to our Jawbreaker episode. Yes. Did the craft do it first? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, because in Jawbreaker, we were like, oh, this is like the first movie to do like the slow-mo walk down the hallway. And then someone corrected us and says it was actually the craft. And (laughs) yeah. And see, I actually love this whole montage. I love it. it you know, them watching Bewitch. Like, that, that's mm-hmm. a bit of a, like a dark, like a humor in here that I really I, I like. Well, this is when everything is going well. It's right before things go to shit. Yeah, yeah. All their bonding scenes are amazing. Yes, I I agree. They are, and they feel genuine. They feel very genuine. I think that's part of what makes the second half harder to watch, right? Because you're just like, oh my god, female friendships with girls that I actually. Again, your mileage may vary, as you said, Trace, but I really like these girls. Up until this point, I think they're interesting, they're complicated, I Mm -hmm. like them for their outsiderness, and I'm like, they're bonding, they're having such a good time, they're coming into themselves. Ah, fuck. Yeah, they create this world and this friend group that you just want to, like, live in and with and just blow it apart. It's very Mm -hmm. sad. Yeah. Yeah. So the other wishes also, sorry, I keep calling them wishes. The other spells also begin to come true. So mean girl Laura begins to lose her hair and Bonnie's scar tissue just simply wipes away. Apparently that scene was also incredibly painful for Nev Campbell to shoot. Wait, the needle why? Part? Not the needle part. That was a prosthetic. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, she's, she's getting like a super tattoo. It wasn't the needle. They just made a prosthetic of her back, and then obviously they just had the needle go into that. I just want to say the foley work of the initial needle penetration is just like, oh, a nightmare. I agree with you on that for sure. Mm -hmm. No, the part that was painful was apparently the scene where Dr. Wisteria Lane is wiping the scar tissue off her back. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, of course, that is still a prosthetic that they had to put onto Nev Campbell. Apparently, peeling it off like that was very painful for oh. her. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's funny because I remember the scene and think, like, wow, it just comes off so smoothly. That's just acting. I guess so. <laughs> she held it together and then apparently cried off screen afterwards. Apparently, Aww. the girls cried nearly every day because of, like, all the wire work and the special effects work. It took a lot out of them every day. Yeah, I can imagine. Especially the um, scene where they're flying in. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently this was not an easy movie to make on any of the four of them. The effects do look great, though. I think they mostly look pretty good. Apart from, like, the glamour scene with the wig that we already talked about, I think it's fairly well done and holds up for the most part. 
Yeah. We're basically at that point right now. So Nancy gives her stepdad a heart attack. He dies. He leaves them $175,000. So she and her mom apparently blow it all on this high-end condo with no furniture. I really love the scenes with her mom because her mom's like the original like pre-Amy Poehler cool mom. A hundred percent. The Connie Francis jukebox. Yeah. Who's Connie Francis? Oh, oh yeah. honey, no. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, God, what have we opened up? Quick, escape to the bedroom. So this is actually where we get our Chekhov's glamour, wherein Sarah changes both her hair and her eye color. Ooh. Yay. Rochelle has a really fun, witty little line there. Just uh, so much simpler than going to the salon. Mm-hmm. And then she says, maybe I'll go blonde. They're all like, no. <laughs> Nancy wants a smaller ass, which I think really sets this film in its 90s, you know, time capsule era. Well, Baby Got Back hasn't come out yet. <laughs> <laughs> in the remake, it shall be, I want a giant dump truck ass. Yeah. <laughs> so that night, Chris stops by for a stalker take on Romeo and Juliet, but Sarah's not really having it because he's getting oh. increasingly possessive and creepy. Sorry, Baby Got Back was 92. It had come back yet. They just hadn't got the message. Uh, interesting. <laughs> okay, girls, get with it. They go back to the spell store so that Nancy can buy a book to invoke the spirit, and then they hit the beach. It's also important to note that at this point, Sarah confesses that she had hallucinations before her suicide attempt. There's little moments where Sarah confesses things about her past to the girls, and there's something very cruel about the way that they make note of all the things that they can use to undo her in the back half of the film. Which we don't really get an impression that that's what's happening because Nancy completely blows her off in this scene. Yeah. Which is pretty hurtful. I mean, well, Nancy's selfishness has been front and center ever since the Manon thing. Because she, like, it's when pretty she... pretty well established, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because she, she asks for all the power of Manon, and then she chugs the rest of the blood wine. I love that she seems so glib about it. Like, yeah, I just drank it all, and it's like, bitch, you're greedy. Yeah. It's very off-putting. It's very off-putting for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so hard, because Fruza Book is so compelling in this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? I stand a queen who wants it all. Fair enough. Get yours, right? Uh, well, good, because in this beach scene, this is this is your first tick that she is nutso. I get chills with that water scene. It's not the best green screen, hmm. but yeah, her, her, like, it's like she's rolling almost. You know, like she's on meth, uh, not meth, she's on, um like, Molly or Ecstasy or something. It's real intense. She's definitely power tripping, yeah. I can feel you and me! <laughs> I'm your daughter now! <laughs> I do like the way that this is filmed as well. So they call the corners, they invoke Manon, we get the spinning 360 camera that like descends from the air above them. And then Mm -hmm. of course Nancy's struck by lightning and she's walking on water. I actually think the effect work on the walking on water scene looks really good. It's also really good in terms of uh, the accuracy of the Wiccan practice you see in that scene. Mm -hmm. A lot of the symbolism and the correspondences and even like the chants, it's all fairly well done. This is a, maybe a good point to note that they made a lot of effort to make sure that there were scenes of nature in almost all of the girls' scenes. So yeah. obviously each of the girl corresponds to one of the corners or an element. And they tried to make sure that there were always elements of like greenery or water or to a lesser extent fire because that one's a little too obvious. But obviously it comes into play at the party scene when Nancy really does her thing. Well, it's not just that, but also you have, like, the tools, like the chalice, the incense, the knife, and the candle, which also correspond to, like, the elements, and also the animals that they're carrying as well. Right. Which is really interesting. 
Okay. They super powerful now. They also killed a bunch of animals or sharks. What are they? Whales? Sharks? No. What are sharks. they? Whales? No. <laughs> those are clearly sharks. <laughs> there's like a hammerhead. There's a great white. We don't have those in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> We're not near a beach. I don't know. What can I say? So on the car ride home, Sarah is correctly worried that Nancy has become drunk with power, and the other two girls are not overly concerned, so... <laughs> no, no, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> They're basically just like, cool, she can change all the stoplights. It's like, girls, read the room. This is not good. <laughs> I mean, as teenagers, they do have that sense of, like, invincibility, though, so I can oh, kind of yeah. see why they're being idiots. Hey, someone posted on one of my things yesterday, and they were like, oh, I loved this movie as a kid, but as I got older, like, I learned to like it less. I mean, I have liked it less. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of like Rory Gilmore syndrome, where it's like when you're a teenager and you're watching Gilmore Girls, like, you love Rory. She's great. And then when you get older, you're like, oh, Rory's a spoiled bitch. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about these girls. <laughs> I mean, this is the issue, I think, specifically with teen films, because... Yeah. Teenagers can be dicks, right? Like, they don't know better. They're not thinking about, I don't want to say the complications, but the results of their actions. So in this case, it's like, hey, these girls have gotten everything that they've ever wanted, and they can do whatever they want, and why is that a bad thing? And I think that's why Sarah is ultimately the main character, and she's the, the girl with the good powers, because she's the only one who sees, oh, you know what? We've actually taken this too far. We shouldn't be abusing our powers this right. way. So... The results of their powers is starting to become immediately clear. We see a nearly bald and hysterical Laura doing a wet and wild in the shower. I have no sympathy for Laura, though. Not at all, right? I'm fine with that happening to her. Honestly, and we haven't mentioned this character at all, but I really feel robbed that we don't get any kind of comeuppance for Breck and Meyer. Mm -hmm. But yes, I'm on your side. I, I, I have no sympathy for her. And, you know, you do have Rochelle that gives her a look of sympathy because she's like, oh, God, what have I done? But, yes. girl, she don't deserve it. No, 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 no. <laughs> like, of all the characters in this movie who maybe don't deserve the things that come their way, mm -hmm. Laura deserves everything that came her way. Uh, yeah. I think Chris does, too. Yeah, I he just gets too easy. I don't know that he deserved to die. I mean, um, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> Well, we'll get to the ending, you know, but yeah, I think that Chris deserved maybe a harder death, like a full realization that he was dying. Like, oh, I see. When I'm seeing revenge in a movie, like, I want to see the person getting revenged upon. Like, I want them to realize it, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas with him, I feel like he's always kind of under that spell, so he doesn't really realize what's happening. This is very true. And that's actually where we're at at this point. So Sarah reluctantly agrees to meet up with Chris because, of course, she doesn't have any other friends and she can't talk to the girls because they're under Nancy's spell. So <laughs> she meets up with him. They go up to a kind of lover's lane lookout point that's apparently very famous in Los Angeles. <laughs> and he sexually assaults her. And it's really icky. I remember thinking it wasn't that bad because she gets out of the car fairly quickly and it seems fine. And then he fully attacks her on the side of the road. And I was like, yeah. oh no, this is really bad. I, I was going to say, I think you need that to quote unquote justify his death. But then I feel kind of icky saying that about sexual assault. And also, like, it's kind of icky that we're like, he's under a love spell, right? right. Yes. Well, but anytime there is a love spell used in anything... <laughs> Mm -hmm. it's either rape or it's like they want you so bad that they want to tear you apart. 
that's what I'm saying. That's not love. So the conflation of like violent sex and love is something right. that I think could be discussed a little bit more. It's problematic for sure. I know that I have gotten upset with you, Joe, when you say, oh, it should have been this. I'm cool. Yeah, but what you want the movie to do isn't what it's doing. Right. What I want this movie to do, this is a rape. I mean, well, I mean, you know, he's being quote unquote forced to rape by her magic. You know, their whole, oh, whatever you put out the world comes back times three. I want him to be the main villain of this movie and I want them to team yes. up against him. And that's not what we get. And again, I get that's the point. <laughs> but I hate that. I mean, I think this is what 20 some odd years perspective affords us, right? Like, I think back in the day, this would have been like, oh, yeah, we're using sexual assault as a plot point. It happens on every teen show. It happens in a bunch of different movies. And now we look at it and say, you know what? It's icky conflating these ideas. And also, do we even really need to see this? Do we even really need to include this? This is a choice that this film decided like, yeah, let's make this man a rapist and let's show the sexual assault. I, I think they, that they need to do that to make his murder go down easier. Yeah. But I don't disagree with you that I think it would be a more interesting film if he came out of the spell, was still a totally asshole person, and had the realization before he gets what's coming to him so that we could have that moment of cathartic resolution where he realizes you know what i fucked up and then the girls still get their revenge and i think that's maybe where my issue with this film comes there isn't i mean there is a resolution but like there really isn't a resolution for anything in this movie for me hmm. but we'll get there <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah so we're at the sexual assault sarah manages to run away she gets to rochelle's house and nancy immediately begins plotting revenge so she's gonna go to trey's party I thought Trey was Breckenmeyer, but apparently that's some other guy. So. No, Breckenmeyer is Mitt. Yeah. He's at the party. He's still a dickhead. So Nancy goes to this party. She glamours herself to look like... We are missing, though, Christine Taylor in that wig. Who yes. says hello to Rochelle and then is never seen in the movie again. No. Are we supposed to, like, see that maybe losing her hair has made her not be racist somehow? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I think that's Is the that implication. Is that the cure for racism? Yeah. Well, it also implies that, like, all of her friends abandoned her. Like, that's the idea, right? That, that, that this normal arc would go. Oh, she's lost her friends, so she turns to the person that she was bullying. But we haven't seen that happen because her friends have been taking care of her the whole time. Yeah, yeah. so that doesn't make any sense to me. It makes no sense. No, and the fact that it plays almost like a comedy beat Let's just say that this part of the story has not aged well and does not play at all well in this particular moment. Yeah. Although I do love Rochelle's really brilliantly, elegantly awkward response to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Nancy seeks out Chris and she glamours herself to look like Sarah. And then she basically returns the favor by sexually assaulting him because he thinks that he's having sex with one person and it's actually a different yes. person. And we have been criticized before in our single white female episode of making light of female on male rape and don't want to do that again on this one. But um, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's really fucked up. What I mean, again, as terrible as Chris is, like you could argue that, yeah, he's not in charge of any of his actions, including the rape because it's, well, it's the male deity <laughs> doing it. But yeah, I mean, it's really fucked up what she does to him in this scene. I think he is responsible for the actions, though, because it was a love spell. It wasn't, like, a rape spell. <laughs> I feel like it's the kind of person that he was was being exacerbated by the spell. Mm. Or, like, amplified, even. Yeah. See, I guess I'm going back to my, like, 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 there's a Buffy episode where Xander uses a love spell on Cordelia, but, like, it basically works on everyone in the world except Cordelia. 
And so it basically, like, in the end, like, because everyone's fighting for him, because they're quote-unquote in love with him, they try to rip him apart to each get a piece of him. So, like, when I look at love spells, like, like, like where the repercussions are like this, that's how I'm viewing it. But I do understand where you're coming from. I, I, I do get that. I, I guess I just never looked at it that way. Yeah, because I think the difference is, is that in that Buffy episode, they're not acting like they're normal behavior. Right. Mode, whereas right. we've never seen Chris act good. Yeah. He's always been a dickhead. Okay, yeah. You know what? That makes sense. So Sarah arrives and she wants to try to stop Nancy because she doesn't agree with what's happening. But uh, Chris just can't help himself. He goes off on Nancy and she in turn flips out on him. She loses control or maybe she's in full control and she throws Chris out the window to his death. Mm. This scene is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is a testament not just to Feruza Bulk's acting prowess, but to me it's kind of the climax of the film it's the climax of the film i want to see it's the emotional climax yeah for sure. and i love that shot of her feet like dragging across the floor as she moves towards him mm-hmm. yes. which was a reshoot that they apparently filmed in a parking lot with an extra oh man it's great <laughs> i'm like these are why reshoots are sometimes necessary because they give you golden shots like that and if y'all sign up for our patreon and y'all listen to our six on a plane commentary you'll see that reshoots can also do wonders for a film <laughs> this is not untrue yeah <laughs> so sarah's real real sad that chris is dead so she wallows around in her bed for a little bit and then she decides she better perform a binding spell to prevent nancy from doing harm to others and herself and this is when valeska your aforementioned deleted scene about her approaching the other girls about it would have come into play yeah and i think would have been really helpful i agree so she has a hallucinatory dream where the girls invade her bedroom. I think the shot is great as well, where they're mm-hmm. hovering above her bed. It reminds me a little bit of Hocus Pocus. Dude, dude, I thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a bad way, but just like the, the no. flying, kind of hovering menace With the wind blowing at their clothes and their hair. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this this scene is great doesn't even bother me that it's a dream because i think it's so well done but okay it is a dream maybe but i still believe that they put that dream there oh 100 percent. yeah because then you get like um the next day that comment about how have you been sleeping Mm -hmm. sarah yeah they knew exactly what they're doing from this point on man these girls are terrible too i mean they're already terrible to her already but like the rest of the film is just like constant I don't want to make grand statements, but we've seen a lot of depictions of the psychological warfare that teenage girls will inflict on each other, right? Right. So, you know, they're not going to walk up to somebody and punch them in the face. They're going to manipulate their dreams. They're going to corner them in a bathroom and... They're going to tell them what people used to do when people would leave a coven. Oh, yeah. They're going to faux plane crash (laughs) news bulletins. That is some crazy shit. No, yeah. that that is, I mean, again, I like it because it's so it's cruel, but I also don't like it because it's so cruel. Yeah. So Sarah runs to the magic shop because at this point she literally has nobody else. And Lirio pleads with her to invoke the spirit, but Sarah is afraid because she saw what it did to Nancy. But it's also too late because Nancy is attacking the store with like spectral bombings. So she runs home. Yeah, she sees the news that her dad and Jenny have died in this plane crash. And then the house is suddenly infested with snakes and bugs and rats and all sorts of creepy crawlies. So yes, for this... I love this scene. Like, I, I think this is some phenomenal work. I mean, until we get to, like, them crawling on Feruza Balk later, like, it's all practical shit. Mm-hmm. 
They use over 3,000 snakes, including pythons, boas, water snakes, garter snakes, rat snakes, and a 10-foot boa constrictor. Where do you even find 3,000 snakes? Know, Where do you right? source these? That's what I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> like how? <laughs> there's the grub, like the maggoty type things. There's rats. Mm-hmm. There's um, scorpions. Tarantulas. Everything. It's some fantastic production design, and I am here for it. I just can't imagine all the animal wranglers they have to have. So apparently they, particularly with the stuff that happens in the bathroom, which is where Sarah ends up cornered. I mean, the whole house was a set that they modeled on the exterior, but Mm -hmm. the bathroom in particular, they built it as a closed set so that they could have all of those bugs and creepy crawlies come out and then just immediately wrangle them back up so that they didn't get out. But apparently they were so concerned that they still might sneak out despite all those precautions that they sterilized them so they wouldn't be able to breed. I was going to bring that up if you didn't. Such a fun fact. It's such an interesting fact and the kind of thing where you're just like, oh, right, movie magic? (laughs) Well, apparently that had happened on like a past film. Really? That that featured uh, cockroaches. So they they thought about that before they went through with this one. And that movie was Mimic. (laughs) Oh, my God. It actually was not, but. (laughs) I love Mimic. That's how we got cockroach people. Uh, oh dear, Mimic. What okay. 1997? What a year for Mira Sorvino. Mimic and Romeo and Michelle in the same year. Range. <laughs> That's a double feature. <laughs> oh God, I don't think so. <laughs> so of course, this is revealed to be a spell that the other three have performed. So there's no snakes, there's no creepy crawlies. All of that was another hallucination. But they are actually there, and they are taunting her. They're encouraging her to die by suicide, which. Whew, this is uncomfortable. It's dark. It is dark. And again, I appreciate that the film chooses to go there. I also love Balk's delivery of, then why are you still bleeding? Yeah, because she has actually <laughs> slashed Sarah's wrist with an actual knife. But the wrong way. Right. <laughs> I love that you keep saying like, oh, make sure everybody knows the right way. Just in case you don't know how to slit your wrists. Here you Terrible. go. No. We will have a link in the show notes. Oh my god. (laughs) And this is why we all get cancelled again. That's how you know we have a podcast we guest on. (laughs) (laughs) I told you she was dark. Show notes. (laughs) Okay. So upstairs, Sarah calls the corners, and Bonnie and Rochelle see variations of themselves in the mirror, and they freak out and leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bonnie has uh, more scars, this time over her face. And Rochelle's just bald. Yeah. Nothing worse than being a teen girl and bald. Uh, unless you're Robin Tunney in Records, <laughs> in which case, you're amazing. I don't want to talk about more ways to like torture Christine Taylor, but I know that she goes bald because she makes that comment about the hair. Yeah. But given that we're dealing with racism here, they could have gone with much more brutal, hmm. yet still realistic ways of torturing her. Uh... Like that tie into the treatment of Black's. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of all the terrible things that we could say and maybe don't want to go there. Yeah, that's fine. I'm happy with the way that they handled it. Okay. It feels appropriately teen girl revenge. Yeah, and I guess if they are going for PG-13, then... Right. So... The amazing fight scene. Yes, so, so Bonnie and Michelle are gone, and now we're down to just Sarah versus Nancy. I do kind of hate that we lose them, though. Like, I wish that there was... I don't know. They feel like there's not even a presence in the end of this movie. No, absolutely not. But I think it's also because it's always been Sarah yeah. versus Nancy. Mm-hmm. 
So Sarah's mother's pitcher comes alive and encourages her to invoke Manon, invoke that spirit, and she does so, which allows her to take on Nancy. So she covers Nancy in cockroaches and snakes, and she makes her fingers look like snakes. It's all very cool. Looks so great. It does look great. I mean, the snakes, I don't think, hold up quite as well. Um, no. Neither does the composite of the creatures on her boots. No, but I love the idea. Oh, it's great. <laughs> But also, like, for being R in, like, going for PG-13, we do get that amazing line when Sarah's like, oh, yeah, I, I invoke Manon. He wants me to give you a message. You're in deep shit. Ugh. I think I hooted. <laughs> it's a bit flat, though, isn't it? Oh, I disagree. I think it works. You don't think an F-bomb would have been better? No, I mean, it, it does. But I just think, like, the laissez-faire attitude in which she just says, like, you're in deep shit. <laughs> she could just be like, girl, you fucked Now, up. granted, it should have ended there, but then she's like, you know, you've abused the power he's given you. She just keeps going. I was like, no, 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 no. You're in Don't deep speechify. shit is enough. <laughs> Don't speechify. <laughs> yes. You sound more powerful when you just deliver one-liners. <laughs> so I'll, I'll confess that I kind of thought that this was the binding spell and the movie was done. I'd nope. forgotten that we had to go full-on grapple effect. So Nancy produces a knife, and then the two of them go flying down the hallway. And they there's bang so much into paper everywhere. Like, paper. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I guess they had all that paper, like, objects wrapped up in paper from the move. Sure. Question mark. Wasn't that weeks ago? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I'm not here to judge. It's a big house. Yeah. So Sarah is nearly smushed by an armoire, and then there's a really cool scene where Nancy goes digging for her, and she can't find her, and it's just the outline of her clothes, and mm-hmm. then Sarah appears in them. Apparently, it was very difficult to tell people what that image would look like. Like, the special effects people didn't yeah. understand what Fleming was trying to convey. Oh, well, it works. It, it looks good, I think. I think so, too. I agree. Yeah. So she kicks Nancy down the hall into a mirror, and at this point, she's down for the count, so we can finally complete this binding spell. And then we get this reshoot, which is not as effective. Wait, the coda's a reshoot? Yes. So originally it went from this to Nancy in the institution. And that was it? That was it. Because people didn't really get the fact that the plane crash was a glamour, so they had to have come back and like explicitly explain that, which is my least favorite part of the film. When Rochelle is like, you know, we made up that whole story about your parents. I was like, oh my god, the yes. The parents are in the background. You can see <laughs> them. They're not stupid. <laughs> also, it's just a practical joke. And then Sarah's like, funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, this is the ultimate piece where if you had any residual goodwill towards Bonnie or Rochelle, the way that they act in this scene, it feels out of character. Like, I wanted them to come back and be very yes. apologetic. That is exactly my thing. And, and it could have played like that. First of all, this is a reshoot. So you don't have the scene. The last we see of Bonnie and Rochelle are them running away from the house. Yes. That sucks. Can you imagine? Oh, it, I, I don't like that. But no. then we could have had that, like, leaving a, at least with them feeling apologetic. But then we get fucking Rochelle that says she probably doesn't even have powers anyway. Hmm. And then Bonnie's stupid giggle after it's that. It's such a sour note to leave those characters on. And yeah, yeah I, I feel like even though their power corrupted them, well, okay, if that's the message, their power is gone now. So why are they still bitches? I'm so divided about this because in yeah. some way I'm like, you know what? Okay, this film is willing to say, yeah, we're presenting you with teen girls that aren't necessarily likable or they haven't learned a fucking right. Disney lesson. And in some ways that's worth applauding. But as a viewer who liked these girls and liked their friendship 
and then had to watch them turn on one another and actively try to murder one another, I really would have liked something that said, you know what, we don't need to be friends, but we fucked up. Or if you want to leave them as bad characters, you have to present me with a character arc that leads me to because I think I think that's my problem. I understand the power corrupts message, but this is like a flip of a switch. This isn't a gradual. Pro- I mean, except for Nancy, like she's mm-hmm. kind of that way all the time. But with Rochelle and Bonnie, it's a flip of a switch. When their powers are gone, the switch doesn't flip back. But there's no progression here for me. It is immediate. Bonnie loses her scars and is immediately a bitch. And you could argue that there's magic. That plays into that much like it does with Skeet Ulrich's character, but I, it doesn't pan out for me. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm I'm way 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 harder on this film because I like this film a lot yeah. more than The Covenant, which is basically the exact same movie only with boy witches and bad and bad. It's very campy. <laughs> It doesn't manage to balance a tone, but at least in that movie, the argument that the boys go after one another is because when one of them dies the others inherit their powers so there's animosity and conflict built into the basic premise of how they've set up their relationships whereas here it's going to sound really dumb and very childish but i just wanted these girls to be friends because i wanted to see some fucking female friendships yeah no i fully agree with that we've talked about it so often right like whenever we get these movies with girls they're always bitches to one another or we don't get to spend enough time with them to care about them. And I feel like with the craft, there was that opportunity. And then they're like, oh, let's just have them turn on one another like teen girls do. Yeah, they showed us what we had to miss out on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they gave it to us and they like pulled it away. I'm maybe going to make a presumptuous statement, but I feel like this is the difference between a male writer and a male director, even a gay one, mm-hmm. and a female writer-director that we're going to see with the remake. Well, but that's the thing, right? Like... I mean, not to say that all gay men are bitchy, but I feel like it's a gay man writing bitchy females. But like I said earlier, it just comes across as mean and cruel and not really bitchy. And that has to do with the subject matter of the film as well and its overall tone. But I think, yeah, you're right. That's why I think this remake is going to be interesting to see what they do. It is a female director. It's the same woman, writer, director. Oh, good for her. Yeah, and we can name her. Zoe Lister-Jones. Yeah. What's interesting about this is that the remake is a Blumhouse production, Mm -hmm. and her background is principally in acting. So she has done some direction, but she's mostly well-known for arcs on, like, New Girl. And Life in Pieces. She's a main role in that show. Yeah. I'm particularly interested to see what vision she's going to have, like not in just modernizing this, but also I think bringing a female perspective to it, which maybe this original craft might have benefited from a little bit more. It's a time capsule though, right? Definitely a time capsule. Like it feels, this looks and feels very 90s. Yes. Oh, a thousand percent. So do we have like final thoughts? Anything else that we want to say about the craft? I think it's interesting that we see Nancy go from the witch to the hysteric, which is another label that people have used to kind of constrain unruly femininity mm-hmm. throughout time. Yep. I, I'm, yeah, Joe, you had mentioned that to me yesterday offline, too. 
Yeah, it it feels very punitive to me. It also just feels like, oh, well, what's the worst thing that a woman can be? Hysterical. Like, we, we like to label women, and we love to say, oh, well, if women start to act out, that she must be irrational, she must be crazy, she must be hysterical. And the, the best way to get rid of her is to put her up in the madhouse. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, because I know I just keep saying this, but, like, by doing this, you are making Nancy the main villain of this film. Oh, yes. And then you have her be, like you said, hysterical. And that may work for some viewers. Clearly, it works for a lot of the people who, like, grew up with this film. It leaves such a sour taste in my mouth that I I can't really get over it. It's interesting to me because I do feel like when you talk about this film with people who really like it, they don't so much talk about the plot points. Like, I don't know that people say, oh, I really love that Nancy ends up committed (laughs) at the end of it. (laughs) I want to meet those people. I will punch them. The positive pieces that come out of this film, people often say, you know, I was a weirdo. I was an outsider. Right. I wanted to understand the power of female friendships. Like, I wanted that kind of friendship. This helped me to discover that I was interested in Wicca or pagan practices. Like, I wanted to be a witch. It looked really fun. So it feels like people took from this film the messages of the first half and it seems like the back half parts that are a little bit more problematic or iffy people don't pay as much attention to. Or they're aware and they're not bothered by it, which is totally fine. I have said that phrase a million times before. Or they're aware and they are bothered by it, but they choose to ignore it. Like, I think I would fall into that category. Like, I would rather (laughs) focus on the good parts, the parts that we all love. Yeah. Which makes sense. You put a glamour on it. Yeah. (laughs) I made it blonde. Uh, okay. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't have much more to contribute. You know, I, I'm happy that there's a huge group of people that just, ha- that this film means so much to them. I think part of my frustration is, like, I wish I was part of that group, but I'm not. And that's okay. Yeah. You're on the outside looking in a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. All right. Okay. Well, um, uh, that's going to wrap that up. So before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Valeska, do you have anything you want to plug or talk about? Uh, so if you want to hear more about... The um, Witch and the Hysteric, I have a chapter in an upcoming book called Scared Sacred, Idolatry, Religion, and Worship in the Horror Film from House of Leaves Publishing. I'm a co-editor of that book. That'll be dropping next month. You can follow me on Twitter at BitchcraftTO. I have links to Grim and Anatomy and everything in my bio. So yeah, just find me on Twitter. I will post about my projects. I feel like I'm going to make a stronger plug for Grim Magazine just because you're underselling yourself. <laughs> it's always better when other people plug my stuff. People like to talk a big game about how there's only a couple of print publications for horror, and one of the things that we often like to remind them is that Grimm is published in print as well as online, but it comes out twice a year, and we actively look to collect voices from marginalized people, almost always women. The articles are always great. It's got great art by C.C. Stapleton. She's an angel. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> she is. But people should look out for Grimm Magazine and look to support it. You can actually buy it as a print publication, and I think that's a rare beast nowadays. It really is. Yeah, you can find that at anatomyofascream.com. There's going to be a little Grimm tab. You can click on that. It'll give you access to download any issue for free or to order it in print. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. Uh, thank you again, Valeska, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I think we were originally going to have you on... It was going to be Ginger Snaps. For Ginger Snaps, yes. Okay. So, oh, you know what, though? It probably is a good thing you weren't on that episode, because I got a little (laughs) X-rated. 
I mean, that doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> it yes. should. That, that should be our catchphrase. Wait, Joe. was that the cum episode? Yes. Yeah. One I of remember them. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, well, if you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can like our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Facebook group. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram at Horror Queers. Email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. We do love those reviews, and thank you all for everyone who's been doing them lately, because we've gotten quite a few. You can buy Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and shit at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E public.com. I love the shit. I love the branded shit. (laughs) There's so many things. There's like 20 things on that thing. (laughs) I'm partial to the pillow and the sticker, but we make more money off the shirts. Fair. If you want more Horror Queers content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. As of this recording, we have just released our final episode of Creature Feature Month with Arachnophobia, but we've also got another episode on Deep Rising and, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, an audio commentary on Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. Although I will say, as much as I've loved these theme months, Trace, I'm kind of excited on the Patreon to start going back to some new releases next month. Yes, we may not be able to go to theaters next month, but movies are still coming out. And we have two horror films that are brand new, and at least one of them is supposed to be really good. So (laughs) y'all stay tuned for that. Yeah. Uh, Joe? Yes? What are we covering next week? Well, we're ready to cross out Pride Month. I'm not sure it's been the same Pride that we've all come to know and love, but uh, you know what? We made our way through it. So it's time to celebrate another great holiday, Trace. (gasps) Let's do a little bit of July 4th madness and check in with I Know What You Did Last Summer. Just to keep the party going, we're also going to do the maybe terrible sequel, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, as our audio commentary. We're going to drop it on the same day, Trace. So uh, if folks really feel like celebrating, you can get a double dose of Julie James. I... (laughs) Okay, I'm so excited for this. Yes, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to say that we have a returning guest. It's only our second ever returning guest. And people will know that Trace had to make a promise to this person that we would allow them to come back, not just for a more fun episode, but maybe for an episode where Trace doesn't embarrass himself quite so much. Yes, I will not be drinking at all during or before that recording. (laughs) During the festivities? Not even for the Croker Queen? Because what is it? It's Happy Fourth of July, Julie. Oh, God. How many times am I going to have to hear that next week? (laughs) Probably a lot. But on that note, we can cross out the craft. Yes, and cross out horror queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.